Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Tawara Ye Sodawanta Bamunchantu Satang. So this evening the the, the uh, three Vilandaras are the since I'm leaving tomorrow I thought take the opportunity to uh I uh, give them a blessing from the Sangha. And they go to uh, the United States next week. And this is a praiseworthy venture to take on the responsibility of uh, going to another country and uh, practicing there as a samana. Uh, and I encourage you to to uh, not go there with kind of big ideas and of uh, spreading Buddhism and having to uh, you know be uh, teachers and so forth, but the simple idea of practicing the path, developing the path wherever you might be, so the country you're in or the people you're with, situations that occur. These are the conditions that are affecting one's consciousness, but the aim is to be the pure consciousness, you know, be, not be caught up in the endless uh, changing conditions that we experience in the, through the senses and through the mind. Now this is a, you know, it's a, it's going against all the worldly values, <clears throat> and uh, you, because modern life is very much based on the, on the ideas of how things should be, and, and uh, fashions and fads and and uh, social pressures and intimidations, power struggling, uh, views and opinions. Uh, that are just part of uh, the human uh, condition, and that's why it's so so important to really notice, observe the the samsara, the conditioned realm, not as a not to judge it or or make any uh, criticism of it, but just to notice, like the physical body, its uh, sensory uh, activities. And and the objects of sense, the you know whatever qualities manifest in your consciousness, be the that which is aware rather than the person that loves and hates and laughs and cries according to the conditions that happen to be manifested. So it's a change from the uh, sense of being the the human body, the the uh, 
personality, being a, a, a nun, being an ajahn, being uh, Siladhara, being uh, Ajahn Chah tradition, uh, Theravada Buddhism, uh, Amravati, all these have their, you know, we can be, have very strong personal attachments or views about these conditions. But the real practice is that through the awareness of conditions, all conditions are impermanent. And so that this is to be, uh, you know, trust yourself to notice and observe. Be the knower. As Ajahn Chai say, be the knower, not the owner of the conditions. Now this, of course, is an intuitive awareness because the, the rational world is uh, in dualistic and it functions and, you know, from the best to the worst and true and false, right and wrong, heaven, hell, uh, and all the dualisms of uh, the words, the names, the forms, the, the conditions that we have uh, operate through our consciousness. <clears throat> but in mindfulness, you're actually going back to that pure state of consciousness before the becoming takes place. So you're, you know, before you become anything. And that, of course, is uh, very difficult to understand from the conceptual mind, which is based on dualism and, and one thing being better than another, higher, lower, <clears throat> And that's why it's uh, it's a path each one has to re- realize for themselves. It can't be, you know, you can't give it to somebody. Uh, you can do your best to describe or to point, but the actual reality is to be known for itself through your own uh, awakened, recog- your own sense of awakened attention. Not the sense of your yourself as a personality, but as that pure state of conscious awareness, where wisdom can operate in your through through consciousness in how we relate to the world around us. The uh, people ask me many times why I came to live in uh, the UK rather than the United States because I'm an American and the logical choice would have been the United States um, according to the kind of logic that people use if you're American you should go to America uh, why did you choose uh, to come to UK and the actual reason was not because I had thought it was better or or a criticism of America but because the invitation was so good the invitation from the English Sangha Trust at that time was to come and live in uh, England as a bhikkhu as an alms mendicant and the trust the English Sangha Trust was set up to try to support that, the, the Samana life in the 
in England. It's called the English Sangha Trust. They still had a very kind of national view uh, back in 1956 when it was set up. Later they, they kind of regretted it because they realized that England is not very big and, <laughs> and that excludes Scotland and Wales and Ireland <laughs> and France. <laughs> and so... <laughs> But that's uh, that's all right. It's not 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 anything to. There were movements to try to change the title, but it costs a lot of money just to do that. So we just leave it at English Song of Trust. But the vision was very good of the EST English Song of Trust uh, in the fact that that it was not. Uh, they learned through 20 years of failures because I came first met uh, George Sharp in 1976 when I was passing through London and uh, the English Sangha Trust had been set up by a couple of Arubigu in 1956. So it had 20 years. Uh, it had, uh, you know, an inspiration. It, had, it was a purpose. It had a point. And actually uh, a couple of Arubigu did have a, a sense for what was needed you know, considering that he he had no real training as a Buddhist monk, he was uh, kind of ordained and but uh, didn't really seem to have a lot of of monastic training. But he had a vision, and that vision, uh, you know, be, began to take fruition uh, through uh, through the efforts of our sangha as we developed our life here in in England. That's what I've been trying to encourage in California with the Sarnaloka Trust is to uh, create a situation where the the nuns can not not be put in be expect you know that they expect them to be missionaries and teachers and meditation masters and be involved in endless kind of converting um, activities or being caught up in the endless uh, invitations to conferences and and meetings and whatnot that will no doubt be uh, come their way when they go there because the uh, American mind loves to have conferences, meetings, discussions and religious conferences and Theravada Buddhist conferences and all Buddhist conferences and on and on like that. There's no, probably you'll have an enormous uh, supply of invitations for all kinds of very good things. <clears throat> but uh, encouragement is to keep your priorities clear, you know, because uh, all that is not to, to dis- disparage it, but your real priority always has to be this this sense of awareness here and now, mindfulness in the present. And that takes, uh, you know, simplification of one's life rather than being a, uh, an interesting personality, charismatic or uh, something that people, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that become a popular figure or an attraction uh, or a performer. So the the idea of the summoner is always a kind of it's not a kind of 
an exhibition of personal qualities, but a, a kind of reference point towards awareness, awakeness here and now. Who lived a life based on faith in the goodness of humanity, uh, that the basic requisites, basic requisites will be supplied. So the basic requisites, four requisites are robes, food, shelter, and medicine. And I'm sure there will be no shortage of such things in the United States, a wealthy country, and Americans are very generous people. So that's, I don't think you're particularly concerned, <laughs> worried about starving to death or living out uh, in, in, on the streets. But uh, also reflect on that, that your, your uh, position as a mendicant in a very materialistic, uh, capitalistic society. It's, it's re really kind of going against the whole ethos of American values uh, because the idea is to become, to uh, kind of emphasize your uniqueness, yourself, your individuality, your self-importance, and that is very much the the culture you you will be living in, where the samana is is de-emphasizing that. So it is a it is it's um it's also acts as a mirror for the kind of uh, greedy attitude, the idea of attainment, achievement, becoming, trying to control and organize and and um, make things happen according to ideas that one has. The, the blaming, the praise, the blame, the success and failures of the worldly dhammas. And then the samana is, is one content with the requisites, basic allowances. And, uh, and then, but that's the ideal of what a samana is. But all of us have to deal with our own discontentment. Because you can't just, as much as you might like the ideal of contentment, you know, I found in my own life as a monk all these years, you know, in, a, in the American system, you're not supposed to be content. You're supposed to be always wanting something better. And uh, your standards go up and principles and so forth that you, you're always... Uh, you know, your personality is based on achieving and attaining, not on being content. And there was a kind of con contempt for that, like somebody that was content was like rather stupid, like a cow chewing grass out in the pasture. <laughs> this is contented as a cow. And so contentment was not a, a value highly uh, praised or encouraged in the in the uh, very aggressive materialistic society. Individuality is, how, is important there, to assert yourself, be self-assertive, stand up for yourself, be somebody, prove yourself, your self-worth. And uh, this is, these values are the ones I grew up with. And then in uh, monastic life, of course, 
And this affects how one relates to the tradition and the monastic forms and the positions one finds oneself in. And this is where the, the mindfulness is to be observing, not to be the critic, like if you if you feel you should be, you know, a good samana should be content and you don't feel content, then you can feel you're not a good samana. So you get caught up in maybe guilt or or doubts about yourself and it goes around into a whole pattern of of reinforcing the, the basic delusion of self. So we learn through observing the discontentment is like this rather than than uh, claiming it as some kind of personal defect or believing it completely that that you, that it's the truth and you've got to get something you don't have yet or prove yourself in some way uh, be trust in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha in that awareness of that and the Four Noble Truths then is the perfect uh, structural teaching for that of observing suffering and its causes and the end of suffering and this you have to prove to yourself what is where does suffering end what is it when suffering ends and of course you've heard me many times talk about this the third noble truth the truth of the end of suffering or niroda satcha and this is why I've the the emphasis I've been making in the past several years on the on the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, on the sound of silence, uh, these 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 terms that I use, these references, are you know to try to, to point to the the present moment, not towards believing in something like unconditioned as something that you've got to find, but uh, but also to to not be caught, not to be stuck with the in, uh, working, with the kind of nagging irritations of the ego or the self-view. Like if you really never question your own thoughts and feelings, then one is constantly caught into that whirlpool of, of samsara. Because the self is, you know, when one is caught in that illusion of a separate self, it is, uh, it is suffering. Even at its best, when everything is going well, when you've got everything you want and you're greatly admired, praised, and so forth, it's still suffering. Because it is, uh, you know, it is subject to change and, and uh, you can't keep uh, the world in sustain it in its pleasant forms. So when you do have pleasant moments, then if you're not really aware of that, then you tend to uh, fear uh, that in the future it will change for the worse. So even being successful is a form of suffering. And if you don't know this simple, not awaken, not fully appreciating and affirming this reality, that you recognize through awareness. Now the sound of silence I use as a reference point, not as some kind of newfangled teaching or that, but it's merely a expedient means because actually 
in, in, is where you you, be, you can begin to recognize emptiness and non-self. It's not it's not a matter of suppressing the ego and trying to to convince yourself that you don't have any self. But if you begin to trust yourself more in the awareness, ability to be awake and aware and attentive to the present moment, you can see the sense of yourself arise or your, you know, your emotions, your views and opinions, you know, whatever they might be in the present moment, there is an awareness of them. And that awareness then is not self. Awareness and consciousness, they go together. And also, self and consciousness. When we, when we don't know this, then the self is, we're always creating the self into consciousness. So it manifests in me and mine and what I think and, uh, you know, my worthiness or unworthiness arises in consciousness and we, and if we aren't aware, then we tend to get carried away with these, with this self-view. And so the Samana life is, is not to reinforce a sense of your self-worth or your position in society or anything else. It's merely a, a form, a conventional f- form to begin to notice that a Samana is is not this isn't a person anymore. It's not a personality. There's no personality of a samana. It's uh, it's it's a human being who has relinquished uh, desire, not destroyed it or or uh, suppressed it. So it's letting go of desire, not through. Uh, imperatives from others or ideals that you may hold, but recognizing through your own insight and investigation of Dhamma the suffering that you create through uh, attaching to desires that you that arise in consciousness. Now, this is a desire realm, so it's not like you know it's not a, an attack on desire or uh, you know trying to destroy it, but to recognize it. And that which recognizes desire and self is not self and is not desire. And that's what mindfulness is. Now with the sound of silence, at least in my practice, that's where I get this perspective perspective very clearly. That uh, my personality operates like this. I know it. I observe it. That what I think, what I feel my views and opinions, my prejudices, biases, obsessions, fears, and that uh, are like this. That which is aware is not that, is not self. That which is aware of desire, you, you can be aware of desire, you can be, there is awareness when you want something you don't have or not want something that you have. Isn't that you? You can you can observe that. You can begin to notice. I want something. I want to get attain something. I want to get something. I want to become something. Or I want to get rid of 
anger. I want to get rid of greed. I want to get rid of fear and jealousy. You can hear, you can observe that that is, you know, there's wanting to get rid of, wanting to become. It's like this. That observing ability, puto, is uh, is what we take refuge in, in Buddha, in Bhutto, being aware of desire, knowing desire. And then to to recognize that that this is a desire realm. So you, it's not a matter of not not claiming desire as some kind of personal flaw or judgment, but being the knowing of desire is not is non desire. Desirelessness is like this. Then referring to sound of silence, just to, so that you begin to sustain that, that awareness where you, you begin to fully appreciate and recognize and value connected mindfulness, consciousness is like this. And when I do this, then it is like I'm, this is it. This is, all right, now I'm noticing sound of silence in this temple. Fully with this resonating vibration. I also can be aware at the same moment of, uh, you know, the things that arise and cease in consciousness. So I know that this, this is the path, this is the awareness, this is pure, this is purity. This is pure consciousness. And then, then, uh, then the self arises. Well, how do I, uh, can you be sure? Is Ajahn Sumedho just, uh, deluded, uh, <laughs> and, and then the, then the self arises, you know, doubting or doubting yourself. Uh, am I really, am I fooling myself? Am I playing games with my mind? Does Ajahn Sumedho know what he's talking about? Listening to that, and so you, you know, don't believe what your own doubts about whether you, you, you've got it or don't, or whether I'm, you know, I'm deluded or not. It's just like this. So you're, you're noticing and affirming this, not through grasping it or claiming it on a personal level, but just by testing it out. How long can you sustain that, that awareness with the sound of silence? So I used to, in the early stages of my practice, used to use things like counting to five. Just see, because I had such a very busy, um, obsessed mind. I loved. I used to love to think and analyze. I, you know, I loved thinking, reading about philosophy and metaphysics and things like this. And I used to, you know, have books and books of, you know, on philosophy. And then I became interested in metaphysics and in the perennial philosophies and in Vedanta and all the rest, you know, because 
and then of course Buddhism was always much more for me the practical the practice it is much more practical than than intellectually uh, and I wasn't uh, you know so intellectually involved with Buddhism but still once I get into reading scriptures and and if I'm not mindful then I do get carried away with uh, with this uh, obsession with thinking it goes from one thing to the next well when you've got a mind like that and then a, then also the the personal tendencies to be guilty and and low self-esteem not thinking you know doubting my abilities and uh, you know always criticizing myself so I had to deal with with uh, a lot of self-criticism disparagement Afraid, afraid of being, afraid of trusting anything, being a skeptic, and one who, you know, feels it safer to to be self-critical, thinking that that's a form of honesty, and it keeps, you know, it keeps you from getting a uh, an inflated ego. Always afraid of getting of being, uh, having an inflated ego, or getting it all wrong. So in one way, because of a mind of that nature, then it, it tends to be one very doubtful, uncertain, hesitant, and yet obsessed with thinking. So with this uh, exploring and investigating these Four Noble Truths over and over again, till I began to trust, you know, just by listening, listening to, to my mind and this, this rapidity of thought. And the and some of the, of course I, the story about what are you to me, Gwendolyn? You know, that when I was a samanera, this you you've heard probably many times, but it was a kind of stupid obsession I I had the year I was a samanera in Nongkai. Because I I like to think of myself as an intelligent uh, person, and and then I was living alone for a year in this kuti and then you know I was getting some insights and very interesting uh, you know as I began to to really uh, figure everything out about the practice uh, of uh, Four Noble Truths figured it all out that year and then I'd get stuck in kind of dead ends with my mind like this uh, this Stupid thought. I didn't like this thought. So suddenly, I had this sitting there in this kuti, and this this thought: Gwendolyn, what are you to me? Uh, oh God, where did that come from? And then I tried to analyze it. You know, Gwendolyn. I didn't know anyone called Gwendolyn. Why that one? Why that? I thought, Maybe I've suppressed something. Maybe I've had in my teenage or early childhood or something that I had met somebody called Gwendolyn or <laughs> so I tried to figure that out you know trying to figure out who Gwendolyn was that I couldn't come up with anything uh, because it's not in American America it's not a very it's not a name that generally Americans uh, use so <laughs> and so I kept uh, you know every time I 
I'd sit in meditation and this thought would come up and I'd try to get rid of it. And I became obsessed with the desire to get rid of this thought. And then I'd, I'd go outside and walk, Jongrom, and it would start coming there. It pursued me wherever I was. Very soon I became totally obsessed. <laughs> this lasted about three days. And I was just feeling so defeated. I was afraid to sit down or do anything. Because wherever I went, this thing that would take me over. And then, suddenly I saw, you know, it's a thought. And, and my obsession is about the desire to get rid of it. I didn't like it, didn't want it, and I wanted to get rid of it. And, and then suddenly it, the, the, the uh, problem went away. It's something like that, you know. So, you know, you you put to tests, and sometimes in surprising or even kind of trivial ways. <clears throat> but this uh, this uh, emphasis on mindfulness then is, and the the, the uh, exploration of these uh, desires, the second noble truth. Now, from my cultural background, of course, you're brought up as a Christian, even the word desire is a kind of pejorative word. You know, like somebody that has a lot of desires is usually an insult. You know, so the translating danha as desire, it always had this slightly negative feeling to it. And yet I could see also, the desires for attainment. For and I thought, well, that's different. That's not really desire. That's good. That's asp- I, then I gave it a euphemistic term, aspiration. It's all right. Aspiring is good, but desiring is not. Desire is bad. And this is just you know. I don't know how you how these words affect you, but this is how you know. It, beginning to notice how just simple words like desire and the uh, which is a common enough word in the English language how that would how that would affect me how I would see that and then see it always in a as something bad and and then in so much in monastic life is not about just wanting food and sex and things like that. It's about wanting to attain, wanting to become, get somewhere, achieve. Or it can be very noble, wanting to get rid of of uh, nasty emotions or foolish thoughts. Get rid of jealousy and fear and because we don't like that. We don't want those emotions. And in anger, to get rid of anger and greed and sexual desire to get rid of seems like a noble kind of desire but it's still you know when when your when your refuge is in the buto in awareness then you can be aware of the, the the suffering that you create out of wanting to get rid of something no matter if it's justified or noble or what, how, however it might seem, wanting to get rid of or wanting to become. So that's why, uh, you know, I keep encouraging you to explore that sense of, 
of self. I am an unenlightened person who has to practice meditation in order to become enlightened in the future. That's usually the the um, modus operandi that we all operate from in the beginning. That I did. I'm a screwed up person and I don't like myself very much the way I am. I want to practice meditation in order to become a better person and maybe, you know, if I'm lucky enough to become enlightened. I didn't have that much confidence that that was even possible. But I thought at least I can, you know, self-improve through monastic life and living a more kind of simple and controlled lifestyle like uh, the bhikkhu. And so my initial efforts at meditation were based on this assumption. This was my modus operandi, as well as the ground state that I that I experienced life from was from I am somebody, there's something wrong with me, I need to do something about it in order to become somebody better. Now that, then when you, you know, you, then you, I shouldn't think like that, or that's wrong, I should think I'm perfect, oh, no, that doesn't work either. You know, there's nothing wrong, I don't need to practice meditation, I'm perfect the way I am, it's just another delusion, because it's all based on the sense of I am. Whether I'm perfect or imperfect, whether I should meditate or shouldn't, uh, you know, there's then the awareness, the mindfulness of I am uh, perfect or I'm imperfect is like this. And that's where you, you listen to this personality operating, not to criticize it, but to recognize it. And then to discern that which is aware of yourself as a person is not that. It's not, it's, you know, you're not a personality. The personality changes according to conditions, things influencing you, the weather, people you're with, uh, the time of day or night, what are you eating and whatnot. So the personality changes, but that which is aware of personality is anatta, is non-self. So this way you you know, this encouragement to really sort this out for yourself. You know, don't be afraid of anything, you know, no matter how foolish your thoughts or emotions might seem or how real or important or powerful or whatever, they are what they are, you know, so you're aware of them. That which is aware is not the condition. And so you're not becoming a self anymore, you're you're recognizing the deathless, the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unoriginated. You're recognizing it. That there's a recognition of it. You know it, not through through uh, uh, holding two ideas about it, but because it is. It's reality. It's real. It's here and now. And this purity. Consciousness then is seen as, uh, you know, you project impure thoughts into it or selfish views or whatever. But the, the consciousness itself is pure. 
because it isn't a person. It's not good or bad. Well, you know, the dualisms of, of good and bad no longer apply. You're outside that realm of thought and judgment and evaluating things and criticizing whatever. And that's where you need to recognize it and trust it. This, this is like awakening to the, the Dhamma, Puto Tamo. Now at this time there's a lot of conflict in the Sangha and all these kind of uh, problems uh, that uh, I've had to been dealing with the past few days. <laughs> Uh, and the, uh, you know, around the Brahmawangso in Australia and Bhikkhuni ordination and the reactions and the, and the strident, uh, accusations, uh, that you get through emails and so forth. So now this is, you know, so people are very confused about all this <clears throat> because it does pull on, on one, one's emotions. You know, and a tendency to take sides is, uh, you know, we, you know, have our own personal uh, tendencies will will make us prefer one side over the other. But my encouragement is is to use this, uh, you know, to observe how these things affect. There's awareness of the effect of of uh, accusations or intimidations or criticisms that come from, you know, that you get from other people uh, through e- email. I mean, you know, I've never, I can't even do emails. I have to have Ajahn Panyasaro do them for me. Because I, I, don't, I don't like to, I don't even want to learn how to use a computer. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I still get these. That's what's happening now. Everything that happens is kind of, you know, the, Technology is worldwide. So what happens in Australia, uh, you know, is almost automatically comes into the consciousness here in England. And so, and so how to deal with conflict, confusion, uh, strife is, you know, one, you know, one doesn't want it. And that's Whippawadanha, isn't it? I don't want these kind of problems. Listening, listening to yourself. I don't want these conflicts. I don't want to know anything about them. I don't like it. And I don't, don't talk about it to me. I don't want to know. Is the, what is that? Well, when I look at that in myself, because I've certainly had plenty of those kind of reactions, is it the, you know, I call that whippawadanha. I don't want something I have in the present moment. I don't want the feelings that I have when I read those emails. I don't want that. And so it's like really not, not to, is not to evaluate it as, as right or wrong, but suddenly you're actually using wisdom and discernment for using what, what's happening now to, not just to yourself, but to the sangha you're in, the community you're living with, the people that you live with. And then when, when you feel personally offended or, or, you know, get 
criticized or blamed or that for something is like this. So that, you know, it's how to use situations that you find yourself in. See them as opportunities for cultivating rather than than uh, getting caught up, in, you know, allowing yourself to be overwhelmed and confused by the inevitable changing conditions of samsara. Now with any uh, religious path, you know, there's a sense of being right. Righteousness is a very strong emotion and righteous indignation is a very, you know, a very energizing emotion. You know, I, I used to love to have causes to fight for when I was in university. You know, you're in that age where you, you were a peace movement in Berkeley in 1963. That was really thrilling, you know, to protest the Atomic Energy Commission office in Berkeley, California. Or to, you know, then there was the free speech movement. And this was rather ridiculous because in the University of California campus, you know, these people fighting for their right to say the F word in public. <laughs> and, you know, really, you know, you know, feeling this is my right to be able to say these things in public and not be, you know, intimidated and condemned for expressing my true feelings in public. And, now this was, and this, of course, when you're young, you you really like these causes. Even I, that wasn't particularly, that one particularly didn't inspire me. But I noticed that that it uh, actually had a lot of followers. It was a big deal, even in the news, in the newspapers. <laughs> I mean, cause, and that is that how that righteous indignation is is very powerful and an exciting emotion. But when you really look at it, it, it is a suffering to attach to that. Because it, 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 you know, it gives you energy and you're right. You know, uh, the ideal of, of being free, living in a free society and having rights. Well, I have a right to say whatever I want to say. Who are you to tell me I can't say the F word in public. <laughs> and, uh, and a sense of right, being right in a way, you know, if you, if you're attached to the idea of personal freedom, then, then there's a point. You are right. So being right is not always right. In other words. <laughs> and, uh, this, uh, uh, and then you notice and being aware of, of I'm right, my view is right, is like this. And now you've got, you know, like in the confusion in the song at this time, then there's, there's both sides feel they're right. So who's, who's more right than the other? You know, then it gets into the point of absurdity. And this is where, you know, you really... Uh, you can develop this sense of, of that which is aware, you know, whatever side you incline to or prefer or whatever, you know, it's not to, to kind of 
make you believe the way I do or anything, but be aware of of it. Is it's like this, and and the emotions that arise in regards to attaching to that particular preference. Then this way you'll actually be developing and using wisdom in a situation that is really quite unpleasant for all of us. You know, it's not a not a state that one wants in one's life. I want I want you all and I want the Sangha and the Thai Forest tradition and uh, Theravada Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism. I want us all to live in perfect harmony in peace and love, compassion and and respect. That's what I want. And that's how it should be. And I'm right. <laughs> but then, you know, this that's and to recognize that and then this is how it is. Right now I don't feel that. I feel angry or averse or upset or confused by accusations or people's reactions and intimidations and whatnot is like this. That which is aware of that is that's your path. That's the way out of the suffering. And this you can always do within your mind. You know, it's not a matter of, of making it, converting everybody or making everybody believe one the same thing, but it is actually beginning to to prove to yourself this rea- this is real this this awareness this is where purity is where wisdom operates where where conflict can be seen and not be we're no longer enslaved or intimidated or averse to the conflicts both in our own minds or uh, conflicts with others. Now, this is an encouragement because it's so easy on an emotional level to be carried away, uh, uh, you know, especially when, when things are very threat, personally very threatening to one. And, uh, and that's where, you know, one gets easily lost. So really take an interest, you know, where, where is it that you lose it? You know, to be aware of where you fall apart or get really angry or upset and, and that. Not, not as a criticism of yourself or see, take claim it as a personal weak, weakness, but to begin to notice where, where your Achilles heel is, where, you know, the, where you fall apart, where you lose it is here. And then you can actually, by knowing that, by consciously recognizing that, you, you begin to resolve that. So you're not just to help as a victim of the, you know, of the pushing the button. And, uh, you know, so that when somebody says this, you, you feel angry or whatever. So I remember Ajahn Ananda using, not the present one, but the one that was, uh, helped establish Titters, you know. I used to tease him because he had a, what I called a Nixon button. He's a pretty genial kind of character, and then whenever you'd say Nixon, 
he goes, <laughs> and he you could do it almost playfully, you know, say Nixon, and you get the same response, and you keep laughing at him until he gets the point. <laughs> and because uh, that, that was at the time when you know he he was a Vietnam War veteran, and Nixon was the the villain. So these are just uh, kind of encouragements to uh, know how to develop, whether you're here at Amravati or in California or wherever you happen to be. The encouragement is to, is to trust this. You know, so I do have confidence in all three of you, Ajahn Ananda Bodhi, Ajahn Mita, Ajahn confidence in, you know, that you, you, you have enough insight to be able to, to learn from, you know, whatever you have to encounter in your life in California. So that the Sangha here is uh, giving you this, uh, this trust and this encouragement and support for this because it is a, you have to sacrifice a lot to, to, uh, you know, to step out of, uh, you know, the security of here into uh, the unknown and uh, take positions maybe that, you know, where you, you are going to be uh, the focus of uh, love and hate and criticism and blame and praise. But whatever happens, always remember the priority is to be aware of how it affects you. You know, how, it, how praise, and they say, you're the greatest uh, teacher in the, all of North America, it feels like this, or the, you're the worst uh, Buddhist I've ever met is like this. <laughs> and, and you, you know, but your awareness is what you're, you're referring to, you know, what you're recognizing is your path, not the opinions and views, uh, are true or false statements or criticisms that one gets from others. It's not to, to ignore them or to dismiss them, but also one can use them. Sometimes we learn through, through being criticized by others. Sometimes their criticisms are valid. You know, and they're worth considering. Other times you're unfairly criticized. And that's where, when I feel I've been criticized unfairly, that's where I, that's one of my weak points. I get righteously indignant. So I really looked at that, you know, really watched that in myself. You know, somebody blames me for something I haven't done or criticizes me unfairly uh, is like this. Well now, because of that emphasis, I'm willing to recognize uh, my own weak, the weakness that I have, where I tend to lose it and get carried away. Now that's not really a problem anymore, you know, because you're actually resolving the karma that one has made with that particular condition. So it is ongoing, you know, this is also 
a lifetime practice. So you don't reach a point where it's suddenly it's all just blissful happiness and you, you're floating in a cloud of, of peace and, and uh, loving kindness. But it's like the uh, uh, vipaka kama. I found these, this term very helpful. Like we have to live with, with the results of our life, whatever that might be. So even in the scriptures, the Buddha in the scripture, you know, had his vipaka kama. So he had, you know, I found it helpful to reflect on, you know, some of the accusations and problems that faced uh, the uh, Lord Buddha in India 2,552 years ago after his enlightenment. It wasn't all just floating in a pink cloud of bliss and joy, but, you know, it had to deal with praise and blame and success and failure, just like with the aging process of the body, with sickness and and, uh, difficult monks and nuns and lay people and so forth, you know, it, it, but but the, there was this knowing. He was no longer just, uh, you know, caught in in emotional reactions to these conditions. So, and we all have to get old and, uh, and the, it's not, you know, so the, the body ages, is like this, or, uh, you know, sickness and pain and death. These are, this is a natural movement of conditioned phenomena from birth to death. And this uh, awareness, or this is, this is an enlightened consciousness. Consciousness that's not clouded by the distortions of our ignorance and delusion. But that doesn't mean there's no conditions in it. It means that that one has shifted from being the conditioned to the unconditioned, being this pure awareness rather than this personality that uh, depends on praise and resents blame or wants to be successful and doesn't want to be a failure. So the the encouragement is liberation from delusion and 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 this also is something I can't give you. But I would if I could actually. It would make me happier then too. If I had the magic wand and touch each one of you and you'd become enlightened forever. But <laughs> it doesn't it's not that way. So it's like encouragement. We need Encouragement, support, and and then, but then the rest is up to you. You know, one need, one can't depend on even encouragement from others because you find the strength within yourself. You don't need other people's encouragement, even though it it's appreciated. You don't need the respect or the admiration from others or the support from others even though when you get it, it's appreciated. Because you find that that strength within yourself, within pure consciousness, 
rather than you know in the, in the whimsical uh, unstable personalities that we have they cannot be trusted but this can be trusted but it is also to to notice to awaken to it value it affirm it and cultivate it in the the life that you're living is whatever happens you know and that and just see whatever happens is your vipaka kama way of learning from it opportunity to learn rather than as some kind of great obstruction or or uh, the end of the world or even thinking you know being disillusioned with buddhism or with monasticism or with whatever is it's still, you know, a condition of the mind. You know, so it's, it's uh, this is learning to trust this, which is truly worthy, and and not be caught in the illusions of the changing conditions. So I offer this for your reflection.